Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 again. We've got a few more, maybe another week or two of kind of, you know, not so great news, but then we'll turn the corner and and we'll see the the blessing of the gospel and how it relates to all these things that we're learning. Uh, Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever heard the statement, there's no such thing as a dumb question? How many of you ever heard that statement? There's no such thing as a dumb question. Uh, There was a famous astronomer and astrophysicist uh, named Carl Sagan. Any, Any of you know who Carl Sagan is? Uh, had had some some pretty influential uh, work uh, with our with our space program and, and some cosmetology and things like that. Uh, co- cos- he was a cosmologist, so you know he he had this statement in one of his books. He says there are there are naive co- questions, there are tedious questions, there are ill phrased questions, there are questions put after inadequate self criticism. But every question is a cry to understand the world. There is no such thing as a dumb question. Well, uh, you know, that's Carl Sagan, and I don't personally believe he was a believer in Christ uh, or the authority of Scripture. Uh, he probably wasn't a teacher of the Bible either, because uh, <laughs> if you sat in any good Bible study, there's probably a couple of dumb questions that were asked. I probably asked them. You probably did too. <laughs> I remember you being there. So anyways, okay, so, <laughs> you know, there, we're going to get into Romans chapter 3 this morning, and the reason I'm prefacing the message with, with kind of that illustration is, the first eight verses, there's going to be several questions that we're going to see that man asks to God as he tries to reason because of all the sinfulness that we've just read about in chapters one and two. Man's going to ask some questions and God's going to give some answers. And, and this morning we're going to really see, and I, I think I maybe you know, put it in your notes, uh, we're going to see a series of questions, questions that show the depravity and the reprobate thinking of a lost man as he tries to reason with God as he realizes that he cannot escape the judgment and punishment for his sin. And, uh, and, and this literally is kind of the end of all the things that we've learned in Romans 1 and Romans 2. Now we're going to culminate in Romans chapter 3. And, uh, and so let's pray and ask the Lord to, to be with us as we study. Father, we need you this morning. Uh, I really pray, God, open and unpack the scriptures so that we can understand uh, this morning uh, what this thing really looks like in the end. I know many people in this room, God, profess to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, Lord, help us to still learn uh, that there are lost people that think like this. We used to think like this until we changed our mind about Jesus Christ. And so, God, open the Scriptures. Give us your understanding through the Holy Spirit of God as we compare Scripture with Scripture. God, we'll give you the glory for it, and we, we give you the day, and we just rejoice in what you're doing. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at Romans 3. Let's read verses 1 to 8. It's on the screen if you don't have a Bible this morning. Look what it says. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much much every way, chiefly, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. But for what if some said, uh, let me start that again. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, 
Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Kind of a, a technical piece of scripture, if you will. Several questions. Paul's writing this, and again, this comes on the heels of chapter 2. The first question that he asks is this, uh, that he asks in, in the sense of, of, of the lost man dealing with his sin and brokenness before God. The first question is this, what advantage does the physical Jew have in light of what we learned last week out of Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29? What advantage does the physical Jew have? He, he asked that right there in verses 1 and 2. Okay, well look, uh, you have to remember what we talked about last week. How many of you were here last week? Okay, so look, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, this is one of the passages we looked at last week. Paul comes at the end of chapter 2 and he says, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is an outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the what? Of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And last week we said, you know, there are literally two different distinctions of, of, of Jews, if you will. There were those that were physical Jews, the, the lineage, the, the, the physical Jew, uh, the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and that goes all the way back to Genesis 17. We don't have time to look at that. But that is one of the, the Jews that, that certainly Paul was talking about. But then he also said that there is, a, there is such a thing as a spiritual Jew, one that has been circumcised, not outwardly in his flesh, but inwardly in his heart. In other words, at the moment of salvation, God performs a spiritual surgery on you and I. When we get saved, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11 says that we are circumcised with the circumcision made, keywords, without hands in the putting off of the bodies of, body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so when you got saved, God used his Holy Spirit and God used the eternal word of God to cut you away from the body of your sin. Spiritually speaking, we learned that last week. And so now as Paul begins Romans chapter 3, he says, well, okay, if you're telling me that, that spiritual Jews are the ones that really are, are saved and right with Christ, then what's the point of the physical Jews? What advantage do they have? What, what, what is the benefit of them? And God answers that question in verse 2. Well, much every way. <laughs> Why? Because unto them were committed the oracles of God. And we touched on this a little bit last week, but we'll touch on it again today. You know, the Jews were God's chosen people. God gave them his commandments. God gave them his word, the Ten Commandments, for example. So in Acts chapter 7, when you, when you study that word oracles, the word oracles of God, or, or the phrase oracles of God, it's another way that you could say God's word. Unto the physical Jew, God gave his words to, Acts 7 and verse 37. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord raise, Lord your God raise up unto you of, the, of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness when the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers, listen, who received the lively what? Oracles. To give unto who? Unto us. God gave his word, his oracles, to Moses while he was up in the mountain, Mount Sinai, right? The Ten Commandments is, is, is an example. 
And God brought, God gave them to him. He brought those down, and he was to give those words to the people. So the point is that God chose the Jews, the physical Jews, not the spiritual Jews, to receive and to become the stewards of God's word. That word oracle, the root word of that is oral. It's what was spoken, right? And, and we understand from 2 Peter chapter 1 that Moses didn't just go in a, a cave somewhere and, and start writing the first five books of the Bible. You understand that's not how it happened, right? I mean, Moses didn't just, just do that and start scratching it out. No, there's a process of inspiration and then a process of inscripturation and a process of preservation. 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us in verse 20 that no prophecy of the Scripture is any private interpretation. The prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake because they were the oracles of God and they, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so the point is, God gave his inspired and preserved word through the Jew. He did that. That was an advantage for them. Now, now listen, again, uh, let me just make it practical for us because we're, we're not Jewish. We're part of the church. We're part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. What, I just want you to understand that having God's word, having access to God wor- God's word gives you access to his character, his promises, his blessings, his treasure. In other words, guys, listen, the fact that we have God's word is an advantage. It's an advantage for us as Christians in the 21st century in this country. I mean, listen, Israel's blessing was that they had advantage over the Gentile nations. They had the specific revelation of who God was. We studied this a little bit last week, and we'll, we'll touch on it again this week. The real question is, what did they do with it? They didn't do a whole lot with it. They actually forgot it. They rebelled against it. They disobeyed it. In other words, the blessing, the advantage that God had for them actually resulted in judgment and condemnation. And, and can I just tell you, as, as Christians in the 21st century, this is just a practical point. We would say today we have God's word. We would, we would say, man, we believe God's word is providentially in, inspired and perfectly preserved. But I, I want you to understand when you make that statement, you have to understand that God's word for you as a Christian is an advantage it's not a burden. In other words, it shouldn't be a burden to read. It shouldn't be a burden to study. It shouldn't be a burden to live and obey. It's an advantage. In other words, every what advantage didn't have to do? And, and Paul answers, God answers through the Apostle Paul, much every way. It is an advantage that we have God's Word. And listen, Christian, for you, you are in, a, in an advantaged situation because in every circumstance, in every scenario, in every situation, in every way, in every detail of life, because you have God's word, you have the advantage. So the question is, are we taking advantage of our advantage? (laughs) You like how I did that? (laughs) I just want to get paid the big bucks around here. Are you taking advantage of your advantage? You know, the reality is the Jewish people didn't. The nation of Israel, they didn't. They didn't take advantage of it. They were very religious, but it didn't change their life. 
You know, the reality is in our life, if we don't take advantage of God's scriptures, because we are advantaged, you know, we're, we're about to get on a plane, some of us in a week and some of us in a couple of weeks, and we're going to go to a country that, that for a long time didn't have any access to God's scriptures other than what missionaries brought there in other languages. And now they have access to God's word, at least in a New Testament. I don't even think they have the Old Testament finished yet in, in Chichewa and in, in the language of the people that we're going to go minister to. And yet we have every bit of it. I don't, how, how many of you are friends with Dan Jalowick on Facebook? Did you guys see the picture of Dan posted this past week of those guys sitting under a tree that, that basically come every week? They sit under a tree in the hot sun, battling gnats and flies and, and the hot weather to come hear God's word. They desire it. They want it. They understand it has an impact in their life. And, and it's so different than our American Christianity where if the temperature is not right, if the paint's not right, if the sound's not right, if the coffee's not right, friends, we have an advantage because we have this book. And, and because of that, we should have the advantage in every area of life. We should take advantage of our advantage. Let us not be like the Jew who, by the way, will stand in judgment of what they had. Friend, we'll stand in judgment of what we had too. Even at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're going to talk about how these questions picture the great white throne judgment because they're, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you're, you're saved. You have to come to Christ, right? And there's going to be a lot of Jews that had this advantage and still rejected Christ. There's going to be a lot of Gentiles that didn't have that advantage, but they had creation and conscience. We're not going to stand at the great white throne judgment. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And God's going to remind us of what advantages we had and what we did with those. We need to be good stewards, church. And so that first question, what advantage hath the Jew? Well, listen, he had every advantage. But if he didn't respond to it or take advantage of it, it didn't profit him at all. And it doesn't profit us either, church. We can say we got the right Bible. We can say we got expositional preaching. We can say we got discipleship. If it doesn't affect us, it doesn't work to our advantage. And so let's, let's take advantage of our advantage. Question number two. Look at verse three. Let me read the verse, and then I'll give you the question. So Paul writes and he says, look, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And, and here, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not writing my own version of the Bible. I'm just making the question a little more plain for us to understand. Here's the question. If a man rejects God's truth, doesn't that nullify that the truth exists? In other words, you've heard this saying, and many of you probably have said this saying, See if you recognize this statement. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I mean, some of you probably have this bumper sticker on your car, right? Right now. We're going to send Alex out to take pictures of your cars right now. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. How many of you have ever heard that statement? Let me tell you the problem with that statement. So because you believe what God says, then that's what settles it, right? That, that's what the statement says. I mean, it must be true. If you believe it, that means that it's true because God said it, but because you believe it, then that's what settles the issue. Well, if that's true, then the converse or the opposite is also true. In other words, if God said it, but you don't believe it, well, it can't be true. Okay. So, so the question is, and what Paul's making the point is, lost man, when he stands before God, when he rejects God's truth, well, doesn't he reason that that just nullifies that the truth even exists because he's rejected it? 
In other words, if you don't believe the oracles of God, does it make, doesn't that make the truth of God's word void or without effect? Well, of course not. So, so let me give you the next statement that actually is the right statement. All right, you ready? Here it is. God said it. That settles it, whether you believe it or not. Now, that's a bumper sticker. All right, we'll have those for sale for, for $19.95 as soon as service is over with. <laughs> you can give online at communityfellowshipbc.org. Okay, so <laughs> God said it. That settles it, whether or not you believe it. In other words, truth isn't dependent on our belief. Does that make sense? Okay, so, you know, I, I gave you the illustration a couple of weeks ago, getting a speeding ticket. You know, your pastor is just a reprobate. He sometimes speeds, whatever. You know, I could, I could in a 50-mile-an-hour zone, I could go right past that sign and say, I really don't believe that that sign says 50 miles an hour. And when the police officer pulls me over and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And I say, of course not. I don't, I don't even understand why you would pull me over. Were you going 70 in a 50? Well, I just don't believe that it's 50 miles an hour here. Well, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. There's a sign that says it's 50 miles an hour, right? My belief, my faith doesn't verify or nullify the truth. John 17, 17 says this, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So truth is truth whether you believe it or not and whether I believe it or not. And so how does God answer this question? And again, imagine, imagine this reasoning happening at the, at the great white throne judgment as man is standing before God and, and literally grasping at straws, trying to reason his way out of his impeding judgment. Verse 4 says this, God forbid. Here's how God answers that. Let God be true, but every man a liar. That's a great verse to underline in your Bible because God's going to be true all the time. God can't lie. He cannot lie. If he lied, he, was not, he is not God. But man can lie. The truth of God is not dependent on our belief. And then he quotes a, a passage out of Psalm 51. As it is written, that thou mayest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Now, now Psalm 51, many of you know this, is, is the passage in which David pours out his, his brokenness, and his repentance because of his sin with Bathsheba. Do you guys remember that, Psalm 51? He says this in Psalm 51. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. He's talking to God. He recognizes his sin. He owns his sin. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. I've done this evil in thy sight. What thou mightest, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. In other words... He says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. And, and man, I'm owning my junk. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of, of adultery. I'm guilty of premeditated murder. When he was confronted with the truth of God's word and the reality of God's judgment, David repented. Well, if you go back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, and I put it on the screen, when you read the quote in Romans 3 4, 4 the Holy Spirit of God gives you just a little bit more information in the New Testament. Because, by the way, the Holy Spirit has the patent on God's Word. So it is a quote from Psalm 51, but look what he says. That thou mightest be justified in thy sayings. That's what we read in Psalm 51, verse 4. But the, here's the addition that wasn't in Psalm 51. And mightest overcome when, when thou art judged. In other words, in Romans 3, someone... In, in Psalm 51, God is the judge, 
and David responds rightly. He repents. In Romans chapter 3, someone is standing and judging God. You catch that? So listen, you need, to, you need to pay attention right here because here's what you hear in our world. And here's what you hear, you will hear. Thankfully, if you're saved, you won't be at the great white throne judgment standing in judgment. But I'm, I'm telling you, the great white throne judgment where all the laws stand and give an account, lost man is going to be full of questions and he is going to be full of accusations against God trying to judge the judge. And he will say things like this, God, you made me like this. You've heard that today. You've heard that now. You hear that when man tries to reason his sinful behavior before a holy and righteous God. He's not even at the great white throne judgment, and yet you hear man's excuse for their sin and rebellion against God is, God made me like this. They're judging God. God, you gave me the freedom to choose, so my sin is really your fault. Or as the Calvinists would say, God, you predestined me to choose these things because I don't have a free will, and so my sin is still your fault. Can I get an amen right there? Either way, it's a judgment against God. God, you put that tree in the garden back in Genesis. If you wouldn't have put it there, I wouldn't have ate of it. Do you remember Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve sinned and God came to Adam? You know, he's walking through the garden. Adam, where art thou? You know, they're hiding. They're naked. They're covered with, you know, the leaves and all those different things. And the Lord asked him, hey, did you eat the tree? Did you eat the tree I told you? I mean, that's a yes-no question, right? Did you eat it or not? Yes or no? If Adam had David's heart, he would have said, yes, I did. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And I'm sorry and forgive me. Look at Adam's response, Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. When confronted with the truth of God from the word of God, the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Adam blamed the woman. But who did Adam really blame? Because who gave him the woman? God gave him the woman. Do you see what he did? Do you see how lost man, the perversion of a lost man's thinking is that when judgment comes to a reality, he's going to try to turn judgment upside down? Your kids do this to you. I mean, if you're a parent, your children do this to you because it's part of our sin nature. You did it to your kids, so don't think you're better than your kids. Look, you did it too. All right? Lost man is going to try to turn judgment upside down. He's going to try to grasp at anything on his way to hell and eternal damnation for his sin. Question number three, look at verse five. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what should we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, as a man. Paul says, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to play devil's advocate here. I'm going I'm to reason like a lost man would reason. I mean, if my unrighteousness is what commended or what activated God's righteousness, well, isn't God kind of unrighteous if he judges me for that? So the question is this. Isn't it unrighteous for God to take vengeance? Now, that sounds like a lost man talking right there, doesn't it? You and I used to talk like that. Can God take vengeance? Doesn't that make God unrighteous? I know I'm unrighteous, but because of my unrighteousness, God shed his love. Actually, 
He commended his love. Romans 5, 8. Many of you know this verse. Like Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, it was my sin, yes, but, but listen, my sin is ultimately what, the, what God used to bring about his righteousness. Okay, yeah. And wouldn't God's vengeance on me be unrighteous? I mean, God is love. Hello, haven't you read the Bible? God is love. In other words, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? In other words, if that's your God, I don't want anything to do with him. Do these sound familiar? Let me ask you a question. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. If a judge sentences a convicted murderer to the death penalty because that's what the law requires, is the judge himself a murderer when he passes judgment? Is the jury that weighed the evidence and came to the verdict that this man or woman is guilty, are they guilty of murder by passing the sentence? Of course not. How foolish. Listen, and there are some people that really do think like that, sadly, in our culture. Okay, so, so they don't think that any crime is punishable. The, the truth is none of that crime has com been committed against them or their family because they would change the way they think. But if you really believe that, 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 that the judge can't pass judgment, then you don't believe in any kind of judgment or consequence for breaking any kind of law. That means that you would have no problem. We talked about like people like Adolf Hitler in our Sunday school, the people that had the power of the tongue to influence and direct people away from God. Joseph Stalin. If you have the reasoning that the judge can't pass judgment, then that would mean you would have no problem with any person like an Adolf Hitler, like a Joseph Stalin, walking away without any reper repercussions of their violation and, and, and disregard of human life. Does that make sense? And there are some people, sadly, that have a skewed view of God's judgment and justice. So is it unrighteous that God takes vengeance? Look at verse 6. The answer is, God forbid. <laughs> God forbid. How then shall God judge the world? My unrighteousness was certainly the thing that facilitated commending God's love because he loved me while we were yet sinners. But we don't need to glory in that fact. We need to humbly repent because of that fact. It's our sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. God is going to be the righteous judge. He will pass righteous judgment. And we have a ton of verses on, in your notes. We don't have time to look at it. Let me just read Psalm 9, verses 7 to 8. The Bible says, But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall minister judgment to the people. Listen, in uprightness. God's a, a fair judge. He's a perfect judge. And as lost man stands before him and comes up with all the excuses and all the reasons why God can't judge or questions God as he judges, well, God will let him talk. He'll let him state his case. I mean, literally what you're seeing in Romans chapter 3 is a snapshot of the great white throne judgment. And then God ultimately will pass judgment. Let's look at the last question so we can get done. Look at, look at question number 4. Look at verse 7. All right, so, so here's the last kind of perverted reasoning that lost man has. Verse 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, 
why yet am I also judged as a sinner? I mean, do you catch what that verse is saying? (laughs) I mean, if my lie brings God more glory because he has to show more grace and mercy and forgiveness, well, I'm just helping him get glory. Now, that sounds backwards. I mean, all you are looking at me like I'm crazy, but that's what it says. That's how lost man thinks. Look at verse 8. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Are you kidding me? In other words, here's the thinking. If my sin brings God more glory, it proves that he is God, and it proves that I am not. God gets what he wants, glory. My sin openly shows myself and the world and God that I'm inferior to God. It makes God look much better. It makes me look much worse. So why would you ever judge me? Why are you judging me? I mean, I'm just giving you more glory in my sin. I mean, I mean, the more I sin, the more you show your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you get glory for that. Now, you, you would look at me and say, man, that's the dumbest reasoning I've ever heard. But we live like that. We live like that to save people. Don't we? I'll just keep, by the way, Paul will deal with that in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's the same answer. God forbid. God forbid. Right? But we're not talking about saved people this morning. We're talking about the, the reasoning of the lost. Man, if I just keep sinning, God, you'll keep forgiving. And, and you can't judge me because, God, you're getting the glory out of this thing anyways. And the mentality is really summarized in verse 8. Let us do evil that good may come. In other words, the end justifies the means. As whacked out as that is. That's a reprobate mind of a lost man. And the center of that reasoning is not God. It's me. Because I make God look good. My sin makes God get the glory. God says, you got it backwards, Hoss. (laughs) Verse 8, the answer is, whose damnation is is just. Uh, Let me just say a few statements and then we're done. Look, you know, we don't give God glory by contrast. We give God glory by obedience. That's worth writing down. <laughs> we don't give God glory by contrast. We give God glory by obedience. If we live in a way that's contrary to the Word of God so that God can get glory through His grace, mercy, and forgiveness, we're doing it backwards. We should live in a way that, that glorifies God through our obedience. God never makes man sin. James tells us that. James tells us in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that we sin when we're drawn away and enticed with our own lusts. I also want you to understand that God does not take pleasure in his judgment, in his righteous judgment. You know, God's will is that every man, woman, and child be saved. Do you know that? Peter tells us that. It's God's will that all men be saved. In Ezekiel chapter 18, that I give you the question. So the the question is, I'm sorry, did did I give you the question? Okay, so in Ezekiel 18 and verse 23, the Bible says this. Listen to these words from God. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that they should return from his ways and live? Can you hear the heart of God in that verse? I mean, God gave his general revelation. God gave his conscience. God gave, uh, God gave man a conscience. God gave man specific revelation so that you would turn and I would turn from our sin to him. God has no pleasure in this final judgment of man's sin. He has no pleasure in it. 
Ezekiel 18 and verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. I mean, God just wants you to turn. God wants you to repent and come to him. And so let me just make a few closing comments and we're done. Look, the bottom line is this. At the great white throne judgment, man, lost man is going to stand before God in God's courtroom before the righteous judge. And he's going to stand and give an account of his life. And listen, he's going to be given a chance to plead his case because God is righteous. So lost man is going to be able to say whatever he wants to say and he's going to be able to question God, however he wants to question him, the same questions that come up on this earth will probably be spoken at the judgment seat, or excuse me, the great white throne judgment. Probably a lot like Matthew 7 and verse 22, where Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have we not cast out devils, and in thy name have we not done many wonderful works. Here's everything I did, God. You can't judge me. And I'm judging you because... You made me this way. And when everything's said and done, then the Lord himself is going to open the word of God and answer every accusation and answer every question. And he's going to answer every attempt of self-righteousness. And he's going to answer every attempt to reason and every attempt to somehow question and somehow to be excused and somehow to be dismissed from God's throne of judgment. God's word will show every thought and every intention of man's heart. It will divide asunder to the soul and spirits. And when he is finished, he will say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. And all that will be left for lost man to say is amen. There won't be anything else to say. There won't be anything else to say. And on his way to depart into his everlasting punishment, into hell and then the lake of fire, the Bible says he will bow his knee and he will confess with his tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he'll depart into his eternal damnation. So the great white throne judgment is going to be real. And it will be complete and it will be right in its judgment. And let me tell you what makes somebody wise understanding what we just talked about this morning. What makes someone wise is what made David wise. Coming to the realization that I am guilty and deserving of judgment and coming to that realization today. You see, what makes a Christian a Christian is not that he's any better than anybody else. He just came to the realization of his guilt and his sin and his judgment and pleaded to God, God save me for Jesus' sake because I am guilty. That's what I deserve. That's what all of us deserve. That's what every one of us deserve. So a Christian is no better than anybody else. He or she's just come to the place of realization, just like David, that against God and God alone have I sinned and I'm guilty, and I am worthy of everything that's going to happen at that great white throne judgment, but by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, on the authority of God's word, 
I can be forgiven. And I am forgiven. Guys, listen, there's a lost world that needs that message. If you're here today and you don't know with full assurance that you know that you are born again, that you are saved from your sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ, don't walk out of this place without, without confirming that. Because, because if you don't, <laughs> you will stand and give an account. And God will judge you based on what you had, <laughs> whether you had a Bible or you had creation or you had God's conscience in you to steer you in the right direction. And every question and every excuse that you can come up with of how God is an unrighteous judge will be answered and stamped out based on the authority of God's word. Well, there will be nothing left to say other than amen. This is, this is so. You're right. Guys, listen, if you are saved today, it ought to motivate you to take this message <laughs> to that world that needs to hear it. And as man reasons the way he reasons, you know, it's good for us to study this as Christians because that's the way we used to think, and that's the way people think today. It gives us the ability to help people realize their reprobate mind. They need to humble themselves for a holy God and ask for forgiveness, all right? So I hope that's encouragement to you and a challenge to you. Let's pray, and then we'll dismiss.